I just love Sunday mornings. Oh, me too. I don't have to go to work. Oh, and the kids are sleeping in. Which actually gives us a few minutes of peace where we can sit and relax and catch up on our newspapers. And drink the last two cups of Postum Honor. That's true. Here, here. Oh my goodness, this is terrible. What's that? Todd, Todd, this is terrible. What? Brad and Angelina are having marital issues. Oh, you're right. That is terrible. You know, it, it really is. They've adopted nine kids. W wait a minute. But my paper here says that they're calling them the happiest couple in Hollywood. Huh. What, what, what paper are you reading there? Uh, National Enquirer. <laughs> How about you? Oh, the Globe. Ah. I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that our tabloids don't agree. Uh, yeah, but they can't both be right. How do we know which one of them's telling the truth? That's true. Maybe we should stick to the real paper. Yeah, probably so. <sighs> Todd? What? I'm confused. Okay. I'm confused. Okay, a couple weeks ago in the Weekly World News, I read that aliens were invading the United States. And now, in the Ukaipa News Mirror, I'm reading Aliens Invade United States. Uh, you do know they're talking about illegal aliens and not space aliens, right? I knew that. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. All right. But hey, I have some good news in here. Listen to this. Housing market soars, possible triple-digit inflation for all property values. Hey, maybe we could sell our house now, make a little money on it. Cool. Hey, sure. good idea. Uh-oh. Oh, why? I wouldn't put that for sale sign up yet. Uh-oh. I'm reading here, housing market at all-time low. Experts predict housing market crash imminent. Uh, no, no, no. We're going to be here forever. No, no, no. Your paper must have it wrong, because this article is written by a national housing expert, and there's like a whole bunch of letters after her name. But wait a minute. It says here in this article it's from a consensus statement on a national meeting on economics. One of these is wrong. Which one are we supposed to believe? Doesn't matter. The only reporter I really trust is Don Roth. <laughs> so, how do we know what is true in life? I mean, with all these competing versions of truth, how do we know what's real? I know how you feel. I, I want to make sure I have the right version of the truth. I don't want to be misled. About life. About God. About everything. You know, didn't Jesus say that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free? Yeah, but which truth? I mean, even in church, we hear different versions of the truth. Mm -hmm. But we have to be able to discern what is truth. I mean, that's our job as Christians, isn't it? To be right? That's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. And I, I know I'm not going to live forever. And I just kind of have this fear deep down inside that... I, I won't know what I need to know before it's over. How do we really know what is truth? Maybe in a hospital. Maybe in a bank. Maybe at school. You tell the truth at the hospital, right? Tell the truth at the bank. I wish they would tell me a little better truth, but tell the truth at school. What about at home? We tell the truth at home. If I held a bar of soap up here this morning, 
Would you have any childhood stories of truth-telling in your homes? We asked the, one of our daughters yesterday, did you ever get your mouth washed out with soap? And she said, Mom, you guys don't believe in this, remember? Which is really true. I'm glad our stories agreed on this one. Then I asked my husband, did you ever get your, I got my mouth, did you get your mouth washed out? He said, no, me, no. This mouth, no. We tell the truth at home, tell the truth at church. If you really, though, want to hear truth, you go to a court of law. You see, in a court of law, that's where verdict and truth and judgments are rendered. It's illegal to speak untruth in court, right? Between Gethsemane and Golgotha, Jesus finds himself in a truth-telling scene precisely in court. That's where they'll learn the truth. He's already been to his own religious court already been in front of the high priest. They've already done their business there. The Jews have sent him on to the government. So the government will deal with him and his truth-telling. It's very clear in the gospel this morning where we'll read together in John 18 and 19. The disciples are gone. Judas is gone. Even Peter, who did his three denials, that happened in the previous courtyard. Now it's Jesus and all these Roman guards as they're off to Herod's palace. Imagine, would you, Pilate in Herod's palace. Pilate, the earliest historians, they call him brutal and anti-Semitic and and vicious, and more recent commentators like PBS say he's just a thug. Pilate was a thug. Pilate, who saw more riots in his 10 years of serving than just about anyone else, who only comes to the area like this when it's Passover or to collect taxes or to make sure there's peace in the land. Pilate has a troop of 4,000 men, and it's probably in this platform area here. You see the model on the screen. It comes from a museum in Israel. Imagine that open courtyard area, which is about three football fields long in the early morning hours, lit by torches as the police bring Jesus bound in front of Pilate in the courtyard for truth to be told. It's close to 30 verses we'll read together this morning, so sit, sit, sit back and enjoy what is, reads very much like a story from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning with verse 28. When the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have handed him over to you. We would not have handed him over to you. We would have taken care of him ourselves. Pilate said, take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did the others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me now to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. He's a known criminal. Then, Jesus took, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to face him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, he was wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he is claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate kept on trying to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept on shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judge's seat at a, a place known as the Stone Pavement, it was the day of the preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. So finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Between Gethsemane and Golgotha here in the courtroom is a truth-telling scene, and I hope you catch it from Pilate's movements, six or seven movements in the story there. Truth-telling and understanding truth are not always so easy. Did you watch Pilate there, his shuffling from place to place? He's inside with Jesus. He's back outside with the Jews. He goes inside again with Jesus, back outside to the Jews, as if the storyteller is letting us know, look, he's really pulled, 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 torn. He's pulled between two tensions. This is not easy, discerning truth. Did you listen to Pilate's reasoning? 
you decide this among yourselves. This is an, an interreligious conversation. When that doesn't work, he says, well, I'll, I'll surrender a prisoner. It is Passover. When that doesn't work, he says, I find no fault two times. I find no fault in this man, which, by the way, is enough. That's all Pilate has to say. He has all the power and all the forces to render the verdict and to enforce it upon the people if he wanted. I find no fault could stand at that moment. But the text says Pilate keeps trying to free Jesus. Then again, he comes back and says finally to Jesus, look, could you help me out here? Who are you? Are you telling the truth? I have a lot of power and I'm going to kill you. Could you just talk to me? Back and forth, Pilate is trying to determine the truth. We see that it's not easy for him. He's caught between forces. And it's about the same for the religious leaders in the crowd, the Jews, the Jews, over and over again in the fourth gospel. By the way, we should understand the tension there in the text when we read that in the fourth gospel. It's led to a lot of hatred over the centuries in the Christian church. But by the time the fourth gospel is written, so much has already happened. It's written so late that Jerusalem really has been destroyed. The temple really has been torn down. There really is tension and stress and fighting between the Jews among themselves and the Christians, this new group of Christ followers, and so you can actually see the tension in the fourth gospel. It's kind of a negative way of talking about the Jews because there's this new Christian sect. It's not so much different there in Herod's palace for this religious group that day. Did you watch their reasoning? Well, we really want him to be put to death, so we'll take him to Herod's palace. There he'll get the death penalty. That's what they really wanted. When they got to Herod's palace, no, we don't want Barabbas released. We, we, we don't want Jesus released. We want Barabbas released. Remember, we want Jesus to die. Then they even tell Pilate, look, there are laws in this land. It is the Jews, the religious people, who hold Pilate's feet to the fire. There's a law here. Now stand up and govern. And finally, they say to Pilate, of all, of all that they could pull, they say, you're supposed to be a friend of Caesar. No friend of Caesar acts this way. There's only one king. Now stand up and govern or we'll tell Caesar what you're doing. When none of that works, at the very end of the story we read together, the Jews, the religious people, say what I believe is the most heartbreaking confession of all of them when they say, we have no king but Caesar. These are the Israelites. Of course they have a king. For more than 1,500 years, they've been working with this Yahweh God. For more than 1,500 years, they've been trying to understand how to submit to only one ruler, Yahweh God. For more than 1,500 years, they've been silencing the powers of the earth. And now they say, we have no king but Caesar. Of anything they could say, now the Jews stop telling the truth. Where do you find the truth? I had the privilege a few weeks ago of helping my mother fill out her absentee ballots for the primary in Washington State. I don't know that this will ever happen again in our lifetime. What an amazing role reversal. As she was on the phone and I said, Mom, go get your ballots. Let's work on them. And she brought hers and my dad's. You know, my dad can't fill his out. We thought, well, we'll, we'll turn two in and get two votes out of this. And she started reading to me things and asked me how I thought she should vote. And I said, no, no, how, how do you want to vote? What matters to you? And she said, you know, just the whole lot of them, they just lie. That's all they do is lie. I can't believe any of them. I don't want to vote for any of them, she said. 
How do you figure out the truth? It is interesting to me when we're reading this morning from John 18 and 19, we're reading verses from a little piece of scripture. The oldest piece of surviving biblical text sits in a museum in Manchester, England. And on this little piece of scripture that measures only three and a half by two and a half inches, known only as P52, sitting under the glass in the museum there, a little fragment of the oldest piece of biblical writing. This is John, comes from John 18. And on one side, and you turn it over on the reverse side, two of the questions Pilate asks are represented there. One, are you the king of the Jews? And on the reverse side of this papyrus, what is truth? Questions very important to the Gospel of John. Who are you and what does it mean? And questions very important in our world today. What is truth and how do we know? You don't have to be acutely connected to the media and to the contemporary culture to know that this is a question people have been asking for a dozen years now or more. What is truth and how do we know? We know about the word postmodernism and relativism. We know about tolerance, that, that we ought to be tolerant of other people's experiences and viewpoints. And some would say that this has led to a dismantling of truth, that no truth exists anymore. Truth is dead, some have said. Orthodoxy, right belief, it's gone. There is no one way to believe now. No one is right. Postmodern relativism. And while there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what this means, and, and now even about post-postmodernism, you would all agree, right? These are very different times we live in now than your parents and your grandparents. The church is in very different times. This is not the church of HMS Richards and Maury Venden and Laverne Tucker. Times are very different. Just this week I was given two books as I thought about what is truth. Neither one of these books would I have purchased. Both were given to me free. But it was an in interesting juxtaposition as I was given these two books. One written by a, a contemporary evangelical author, older, well-established. One book that says the reason the world is such a mess is because the church is such a mess. We've rotted from the inside out. We have no more truth in Christianity. Therefore, he's written a book with 13 non-negotiable truths that the church should stand on and reclaim and pronounce to the world. No apologies. And, and these are doctrines we all know as Christians. Who is God and what is the Bible and what does it mean to be human and the problem of sin? And if the church would just stand up and get a backbone, he says, the world would be a better place. We could tell these postmoderns to take a hike. Now next to that is a, another book written by an Adventist author. This person also saying, the church needs to just stand up and get a backbone. We're chosen. We have a task. That's what it is to be Adventist, and there's truth. And this author says there is no gray. God doesn't write gray. You either believe it or you don't, he says. This isn't triumphalistic. This isn't boastful. It's just true, he says. This is the one true church of God that will walk through to the kingdom to the end. So stand up and be proud of it. It is interesting, when we write sermons, all of your pastors, I believe this happens, there is a lot we write that you never hear. 
that goes into the trash bin, the recycle bin on our computers. Interesting that early in the week or last week, I had written a paragraph loosely that said, if I have to read one more book published by my church that says, this is the one true only church, now stand up and be proud of it. If you Adventists, if I have to read one more book like that, cut paste to the trash can, and I got a book like that this week. Here's why those books bother me, because we tend to, when we write this way, we tend to go out, instead of proclaiming the beauty and the truth that is what we've experienced, we proclaim by tearing other people down oftentimes. So we teach creation by saying how evolution possibly couldn't be right. We teach the beauty of the Sabbath by pointing at our fingers all of those who worship on Sunday. And I'm so glad you're all here from the DAP program this morning. We don't believe that. That isn't how we want to teach the Sabbath. We teach about, uh, about there being no hell and how wonderful God would be that he wouldn't burn people by, by pointing our fingers and condemning people who believe differently than us when what we ought to do is just testify to the beauty of the Sabbath, the beauty of a creator, the beauty of a God who could never burn people in a place called hell. The beauty of prophecies that teach us God never leaves us or forsakes us. That there is a plan in all of this. How do we know truth? There is much that the Gospel of John could teach us. Right now, as I study, there is one vital lesson I'm taking with me. As I watch the parties wrestling back and forth, As I watch the challenge of truth and finding truth and standing for truth and identifying truth, what I see most clearly are parties that are consumed with their own agenda. What I see are groups that are so busy hanging on, the Jews want to make sure Jesus is put to death, so busy hanging on, they can't even see truth when it's right with them. People so busy grasping at their own agenda that they could have all the facts and still miss the truth. Do you know that that's possible? We could have all the facts and still miss the truth. There is one lesson straight up from the Gospel of John this morning. What happens when people grasp for their own agenda? Now, I saw a visual this week that works well for me. I don't know what you'll think of it, but apparently once or twice a year this happens where they throw open the doors of these designer stores where bridal gowns are down in the basement. And apparently for Leap Day yesterday and for Leap Year and Sadie Hawkins' event and so on and so forth, in Manhattan the doors threw open wide. And here go all these women pounding into this to grab designer gowns. And I look at this and I'm embarrassed to be female. The news had the countdown yesterday morning early, five, four, three, two, one. They throw open the doors, and it's a stampede in there because these are designer gowns, and they're just for a fraction of the price, and nobody's even looking at sizes or anything. They just take their arms, and they scoop up as much as they can, and they just hoard it all. They'll just, they'll just get it altered later. They just want a cheap dress. Everybody's dashing through the store, consumed with their own agenda. Before you know it, people are on the ground, elbows. You, you, you see, even there were a few men in this shot yesterday that I saw. A few men willing to try this. They must have loved these women. 
Now, well, if you'll just do a visual adjustment with me, people grasping for their own agenda, I can see people grabbing on to the truth that they have or grasping for the truth and in our busy clinging and holding on and cleaving and being so sure we are right. Along the way, we knock a few people down and we do some damage and we squeeze the life out of folks when we're busy clinging on to our agenda. It is possible when we cling that hard, we can completely miss the truth. The Gospel of John has been very clear, I believe. We read it in chapter 18 and 19 today, but it's not the first time we've seen the word truth. It's come up again and again and again. The first time we see it is in John chapter 1. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, the devil has nothing to do with truth. Chapter 8, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Chapter 14, I will pray to the Father. He will give you the spirit of truth. Chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, it will guide you into all truth. Chapter 18, I came to bear witness to truth. Over and over we see this word truth. As I understand it, the Gospel of John is teaching one capital T truth. And this is what I understand it to be, that God so loves the world, he comes in Jesus to get us and to reconcile us to himself and one to another. That's the capital T truth in the Gospel of John. It's been trying to say it every way it can. In the person of Jesus, you see God coming after the world. That's the Gospel. That's truth. It's from above. It's not from this world. We don't understand it. But if we want to agree to it, we are of that truth. We are in that truth without hardly any more understanding than what I've just stated this morning. That is truth. That is the gospel. Now, all other truth falls in line behind this, friends. This is what we call doctrine. It's what we love to do, to open our Bibles and to study and think together. And in the history of the Christian church, we've had doctrine for all of these years. Well, we've always had it since, you know, the fourth, fifth century, we'll probably always have it into the future. Doctrine, it's the, the particular ways we try and understand the one capital T truth. But that's precisely what it is. It always falls behind truth. It always falls behind gospel. I don't know when the last time I said, so I'll, I'll say it again. We don't die for doctrine. We die for the gospel. And there is a huge difference to the degree that doctrine helps us understand gospel and truth, we need it in the church. Just remember, it is possible to have all those facts and still miss the truth, as John teaches us. It is possible to come up with the gospel according to us. It is possible that some of us are even busy surrendering for doctrine rather than truth. I know someone here wants me to speak up on behalf of distinctive Adventist doctrines this morning. I know someone wants to ask the question, but, but what about these uniquely Adventist understandings we've had of truth? Aren't those still true? I have a book for you, by the way, <laughs> if you were listening. I was at a convention this week, uh, a National Pastors Convention in San Diego. 
heard a lot of sermons this week, more sermons than anybody should hear in a week. Sitting at a table, there was a couple sitting next to me. They reached over to see what I was reading. They noticed the publication. It was uniquely Adventist. They asked me. They found out I'm an Adventist Christian. Oh, that was curious to them. The first thing the woman said was, I didn't know they, they ordain women in the Adventist church. And I said, no, they don't. She, she said, you should just become Presbyterian. They'll do it over there. <laughs> and I told her not but a few people are doing that. And if you're reading your L.A. Times early in the week and you see what's happening in Protestantism, people jump hop denominations like it's nothing. The belief systems don't matter like they used to. You should just become Presbyterian, she said. But then the gentleman said to me, Adventist, you go to church on Saturday. You know, what would happen if one day your church would just decide, no, nah, we don't like this Saturday thing anymore. We're, we're done with the Saturday thing. We'd like to worship on Sunday now. We'd just like to open the church on Sunday. Could you just go to your big church administrators and say, well, we're going to be a Sunday church now. Is that what you would do? Do you know the question was so scandalous to me <laughs> that I, I felt it all the way down inside of me, and I went, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, couldn't, I didn't even know how to answer his question. I had a lot more time to reflect on it, and I would answer differently. I said, that would just never happen. That would just never happen that we would decide we don't care about Saturday Sabbath. And they looked surprised at me. And I was kind of surprised about how taken I was by their question and how scandalous it felt. And I said, it's a pretty big deal to us. The Sabbath. Yes, to the degree that our distinctive doctrines, to the dis degree that our distinctive beliefs help us understand, capital T, truth, we need to keep talking about them. To the degree that the Sabbath is this tremendous blessing and it, it, it makes a difference in my, how I order my life and how I live my life and the rest and the nourishment God brings us on the seventh day, it matters that we keep talking about them. To the degree that we're going to be destructive about this, we should just stop. How do we know truth? At the same convention, there was a panel discussion one afternoon. It was very intriguing. You can imagine the aged face on this end, the 70, 75 to 80-year-old church leader, world leader, sitting on one side who represents the truth. The person in the middle, age 50, middle-aged leader in the church, but very dominant voice. person on the end, a young, what they call emerging leader in the emergent church. 30 years old. And the conversation began about the Christian church in America and how, where, how, where we find ourselves today and, and the progress we are making or aren't making. And on the end came the opinion, we just need to stand up for the truth. We know what's right. We just need to get out into the world and stop being afraid about it. Stop apologizing. Just be a Christian. From the gentleman in the middle, guy on the end, tie in the suit, the guy in the middle, open collar. 50 years old. Well, what we need is to talk to each other. We really need to be listening. We need to build bridges. We need to understand people. I need to understand how that person's experience is different from mine. We need to be a little more tolerant. We need to stop being so obnoxious in the world, perhaps, Christians. We, we need more open dialogue. And from the guy on the end, the 30-something, 
who wore his little dreadlocks all the way down to his elbows and a handkerchief on his head and this tent-like garment for a shirt. He said, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get why the church doesn't look a little more like God. I just don't get why the the church doesn't resemble the kingdom of Jesus just a little bit more. I just don't get why, why Christians seem to be some of the meanest people we ever meet. And he happily shared his opinion. Christians seem to be some of the loudest, most obnoxious people to, to argue with. Why are Christians so mean? If, if the truth has permeated them, why are they like that? And I, I just don't get it. We're so homophobic. This is his language. We're so homophobic in the Christian church. Why, instead of opening Romans chapter 1 and condemning the world, why don't we worry about our own relationships? Why don't we work on the divorce rate in the Christian church and have healthy relationships? And I don't get it. Instead of going to the abortion clinic and protesting and rallying and and getting the vote out, why don't we open our home up and take a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant into our house and give her a place to stay and a place where she can have her baby? I just don't get it. Why do we buy everything the world makes, he says, instead of giving away more of what we have? I just don't get it. Why doesn't the church look a little bit more like the kingdom of God? Some people think the critique of the younger generation isn't so valid because they're not interested in truth. Everything's relative. When you ask these young generations, and I bought one of the books titled, We Like Jesus, Just Not the Church, When you ask them how they've come to these conclusions, they say, from hanging out with Christians. The most powerful, convincing argument for truth, for knowing truth, for seeing truth, will be lives changed by truth. William Willimon says it very well, if it were not For Bishop Desmond Tutu and Mother Teresa, I wouldn't know the Christian story was true. But I look at them, and I see that it is. To the degree our lives are aligned with John 3, God so loved the world that he came, truth will be evident in us, and the world will know, and the world will be set free. Amen. Dismiss us now, God. You are the God who came after us through Jesus Christ, coming after this world. That is the truth we hold on to today. We relinquish that which we're grabbing on to. We surrender it so we can stand the mercy of your truth. May we go confidently through the power of the cross in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer. Amen.